Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for Ash Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good evening again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the epistle lesson selected for this evening. The sermon text is taken from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, can be found on page 1747 of your pew Bible, reading in Jesus' name, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of even, evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this evening you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. Think for just a moment how many times you've heard the phrase, we're better than this, in the last three years. No matter what the context, whether it's partisan politics, foreign relations, behavior during the pandemic, the increase of crime, or whatever else the case may be, there's no doubt that you've heard we're better than this repeatedly, over and over and over again. We often miss two important realities when it comes to this phrase. First, even though we or anyone else might say we're better than this, the implication of it being spoken is that someone else is the reason that we're not better than this. 
That someone over there, out there, is bringing the average down for us all. We rarely ever think that we are the problem. But second is the reality that Scripture communicates to us that we are not, in fact, better than this. That we have imagined a standard that we do not nor cannot attain to. And that's the entire problem. No matter how much we think humans should be able to rise above our, prob- our common problems and our common squabbles, we can't and we don't. No matter how much we want individuals to be good on the inside, we want people to be basically good, we are not. That's because the source of our common problems is something that has been built into our natures since the Garden of Eden. Sin. As we consider our need for both salvation and the assurance of salvation this Lent in our study of the first half of the book of Romans, we start first with our need for salvation and the problem that causes our need, sin. So as we look at our sin in Romans 1, we see that when it comes to our sin, the problem is really a matter of idolatry. So we start first with the folly of idolatry. St. Paul opens the second half of Romans 1 with two foundational arguments. One, God is angry with our sin because our sin is a suppression of the truth. And two, God exists. And therefore, we should feel concerned about how God feels about sin. This more or less reflects the pattern of sin that we demonstrate in our lives. We know these two arguments Paul is making. It just so happens we don't like how God feels about our sin. And rather than address our sin or change our ways, we would rather remove God from the picture. We pretend that God isn't God and that something or someone else is God in his place. But every time we trace of movement of human idolatry, every single time it will end up being true that the real idol in the picture is us. The real thing or person or whatever we want to be God is me, myself, and I. And Paul's initial assessment of all this is that self-idolatry is the height of all idolatry, is the height of all folly, excuse me. Paul writes, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why did they become fools? Because there is ample evidence in the world around us that God exists. There's evidence in creation, as Paul writes. There's evidence in the person of Jesus Christ, as every author of Scripture pointed to. But also, idolatry is the height of all foolishness because only God can do anything about our sin. 
lost in the folly of our sin, our only path is to continue to sin more. That's all we can do about our sin. Sin more. And this is a phrase that is proclaimed to us three times. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. It's God's indication that the punishment for our sin is more sin. The folly of our idolatry is that we suppress the truth about God, about how he feels about our sin, and about what, we, what can be done about our sin. So after the folly of idolatry, all that's left is the deception of idolatry. As God gives us up to unrepentant sin, we see that not only do we suppress the truth, but we embrace the lie. Paul writes, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, historically speaking, idolatry first shows up as the worship of the images of false gods. You have animals, and then eventually, as Isaiah wrote, you have human likenesses. And this kind of started with the things that were going on down in Egypt where you had human-animal hybrids. And then, really, the Greeks and the Romans ran with that. And the gods of the Greeks and the Romans were superhuman and also super-screwed-up humans. Uh, eventually, though, as I said, any worship of a human will simply be a worship of this human. Again, of the me, myself, and I. This, then, is the ultimate deception of idolatry. I worship myself, and I end up thinking I can do something about my sin because, after all, I'm God. I can change the terms so that my sins aren't actually sins. I can change the terms so that I can balance out my sins with self-appointed good deeds that cancel out the bad and get me to a passing grade. But whatever the case might be with that, I deceive myself into thinking that I have the power to save myself. But that's not how sin works. Well, that's not how our sinful natures work, specifically. It's one thing to commit a sin, but there's also the reality that we commit sins because we're bent toward committing sins, because we can't do anything else but commit sins. And so, if God gives us up to our unrepentant sin, and we in turn heap sin upon sin upon sin, all we're left to do is sin some more. And then we look finally in Romans 1 about the outcome of our idolatry. The last five verses of Romans 1 are absolutely astounding. Now, it's quite common, actually, in Scripture to give some sort of list of sins, a laundry list of offenses, a, 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 a rap sheet of crimes that humans generally commit. But there's a really interesting pattern 
or crescendo with the particular list that Paul gives us in Romans. And we'll see if you guys pick up on it as I read again the last five verses. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, which we've covered, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, which we've covered. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they don't, or though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now first, this passage, these five verses, are structured in such a way that if you read them honestly, if you can truly and rightly examine yourselves, there is no possible way for you to walk away from these five verses and to not feel guilty. It's just not humanly possible. Because the first temptation of our sinful nature is to think sins are the really grotesque and awful thing that others do. Now, it's, it's lost its punch in today's day and age. It's lost actually quite a bit of punch. But I remember growing up, the common excuse for someone who is caught in a lesser sin is to throw out the phrase, well, at least I'm not Charles Manson. And the problem with saying that now is that almost no one knows who Charles Manson was. The other problem with saying that now is any public sin you commit, you are the worst human being on the planet for about 24 seconds, and then we move on to someone else who's done an awful thing. But it's always someone else's problem. If you look at this passage, though, the grotesque, awful things that we think only warlords and serial killers do are framed by things like strife and gossip and slander and disobedience to parents and foolishness. This list is intended to communicate beyond a shadow of a doubt that before the perfect and almighty God of the universe, all sin is the same. Full stop. Period. End of sentence, paragraph, and chapter. But beyond that, and as I mentioned before, there's a progression. There's a graded step to what Paul writes. He starts with, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. And then he talks right in the middle of the passage that they're inventors of evil and haters of God. And then the very last verse, very last thing Paul writes is that they not only practice evil, but give approval to those who do likewise. Now again, to those of us who grew up in cultural Christianity, the parallels of this to society will be endless. 
But this isn't a warning about society. This is a warning about us continuing in unrepentance. We go so quickly from ignoring God to hating God to sanctioning things that God despises. That is the image and the reality of the depth of our sin and the only possible outcome of unrepentance. No matter what we say about sin, no matter how we act, no matter what we do, we are stuck, unable to crawl out of the hole we've dug for ourselves. No amount of good behavior, no amount of well-intentioned piety will get us out of that debt. We can't talk our way out of it or speak a different truth into existence. Someone can tell us, I don't believe that. And we can acknowledge that they don't believe it. But it doesn't make it not true. We can't pretend that God doesn't exist and that we're in control. That's not the truth. That's not reality. The only reality we have for our sins is that God is in control. That our sin, in and of its nature, is a suppression of the truth, and that this makes God angry. This is one of those places where the stark reality of our sin is meant to strike us. Because we're confronted with the phrase, the wrath of God. The God of the universe and his wrath. And so in and of ourselves, in our sin, things are hopeless. But the entire reality and context of Romans is built on another parallel truth. The preamble or the introduction to Romans contains these verses. This lifeline as you and I and everyone march through the misery of Romans 1 and 2. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You are unrighteous. But only God can do something about that. The reality of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is that God indeed has done something about your unrighteousness. That he has sent his son to be righteous in your place. That he has sent his son 
to be punished for your sins. The message of the gospel is not that God has changed his mind about your sin, but that God has taken care of your sin. And so in faith, in the faith that God grants you because of the gospel, you still stand before God, the judge of the universe, and he looks at you and gives you two words of promise and hope and life. He first says to you, not guilty. And then he says to you, entirely righteous. Your crimes, your sins, your failures belong to Jesus. And his perfect righteousness, no matter what you've done, no matter how deeply or frequently you've sinned, his perfect righteousness belongs to you. The message that hovers over Romans 1 and 2 and the problem of your sin is the message that there is another one. God's Son who has loved you and died in your place and given you the righteousness of God. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.